You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.37. What's the plan here? And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and I don't know if you can hear, but the city has been doing some construction work outside our studio all day. I'm just kidding. We waited until late in the day after the construction crew left to record this, but I pulled our listeners on Twitter and you all wanted to hear what we were dealing with, so there you go. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta and thinking it's cruel that the heavy construction outside means I get less work done, but I'm somehow even more tired than usual. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 461 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to no one. Something of an oddity this week, we have no new patrons. Depending on tier, patrons get a shout out on the podcast, access to a patron-only Discord, exclusive bonus content, and MSB merch. This podcast is entirely fan-funded and couldn't exist without your continued support. If you're on the fence, what are you waiting for? This week, we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta Episode 39, The Second Coming of Sarasa, or Sarasa Zyrene. This episode originally aired on November 29th, 1986. It was written by Kamata Hidemi and directed by Imanishi Takashi, with storyboards by Imanishi and Tomino. For our research this week, I'm going to retell the story of an epic deception and ask, how do we know what we know about it? But first, Radio Free Shangri-La. Nina had offered me a way back, into the limelight, into the executive suite, into the news. It was the opportunity that I had been working for, and all I had to do was betray everyone at Radio Free Shangri-La. There was really no choice at all. I went to see her and tell her my decision at her office in NZC Tower. The halls thronged with cowering interns and preening lieutenants. It felt like I was home again. Outside her door, I raised my hand to knock, but I hesitated. And then I heard something, faintly, pressing my ear to the door. Lady Haman, before you I am but a poor, lost nobody seeking your help to become a girl boss. I beg you, please grant this poor lost lamb your wisdom, courage, and cutthroat ambition. I must have leaned against the open button because... I beg of you, Lady Haman. Lieutenant Tom Thompson reporting for duty, ma'am. What the... What did you see? What did you hear? Nothing. I saw nothing and heard nothing. I didn't hear anything about any girl boss lambs. What? I didn't say anything. You must have misheard me, ma'am. Good. That's the kind of discretion we expect from our reporters here at NZC. Keep it up and I'll see that you're rewarded. And if not... 
Uh, yes, ma'am. Now, why are you here? Oh, that's right. I accept your offer. Is that all? Well, I, I thought now that we're working together again, you might like to do that thing we used to do. You know the one. You mean... That's right. Plotting, plotting revenge, revenge on, on our, our enemies. enemies. I'll go first. Namikar Cornell subjected me to hideous experiments in order to turn me into a cyber news type, and I want revenge. As soon as I figure out her new identity, I'm going to invite her in for an interview and then... Humiliate her in front of an audience of billions? Uh, Captain, this is the hangar control room. We... Whatever it is, it can wait until I'm done plotting. Now where were we? Oh yes, I had something a bit more pointed in mind for Namikar. But meanwhile, in the control room... What did she say? As she said to call back later, did I miss anything? Well, after the Nindra blasted a hole in the hangar gate and flew out into space, it started jettisoning some cargo. Do you think we should, like, scramble mobile suits or something? Eh, I'll dispatch a launch to collect the debris, but this might be another one of Captain Nina Stoddard's plots. If we mess it up, she's gonna throw coffee in our faces again. Uh, hey, speaking of which, did that coffee taste a little off to you? Uh, I guess I don't really have a frame of reference for how hot face coffee is supposed to taste. Oh, keep working here and you will. Back in Nina's offices, we were making good progress. And then drop him in Sludge Lake. Why do all of your plots end with dumping someone in Sludge Lake? Aren't you the one who told me that vengeance must be carefully tailored to the offense and the offender? That is true, but that was before I discovered Sludge Lake. It's really an all-purpose revenge take- uh, Captain, I really think- What part of don't call me, I'll call you, don't you understand? All this plotting has given me a brilliant idea. There's a competing channel over on side six, the Raya Reporting Corporation. You've heard of them? Oh, uh, sure. The RRC was the only news channel to get unclassified footage of the White Base and Gundam in action they got huge after that. Well, now it's time for them to get wrecked. Neozeon is sending an ambassador to Side 6. I want you to go with them. Infiltrate the RRC and use your remarkable talent for ruining everything you touch to make them vulnerable to an NZC takeover. I'm going to ignore half of that. But what about RFS and all the frozen influencers aboard the Nindra? Don't worry, your new ship and cast will both be waiting exactly where you left them. That's the great thing about cold sleep. Now get going, the ambassador's ship is leaving soon and it won't wait for you. Yes, ma'am. Let's see, there was something I needed to, uh... Oh, right. Good afternoon, this is Hangar Control. Oh, hello, Captain Nina's daughter. Uh, yes, I, I wanted to report that the Nindra launched without authorization. Ah, oh, we tried that, but it blasted a hole in the hangar doors. Uh, and, and then once it got out into space, the ship started jettisoning a bunch of... Uh, I guess you'd call them freezer pods? Uh, about a dozen of them. Yes, most of them had people inside. Uh, hold on, let me check. Hey, uh, what does the label on the empty pods say? Uh, it says... Tom... Dash... Two. And now the recap for the second coming of Sarasa. 
Since their last battle, Mashima's ship has followed the Levian Rose and the Nail Argama. But now he has decided to call off the pursuit. No need to give chase when they know where the Ayug forces are headed. Beach's relief is short-lived. Torres and Keithron tell him they didn't lose their tail, they were let go. And in a fit of anger, Beecha talks about laying waste to all of Core 3. His friends are quick to remind him that Core 3 is full of Ayug allies and civilians, that those kinds of indiscriminate attacks would make them no better than Neo Zeon. At the edge of Side 3, the changing angle of the sun suddenly illuminates the side's many colonies, and they glitter like stars. In among them, sudden larger flares of light turn out to be explosions. A shuttle is under attack by Neo Zeon mobile suits. Emery radios to urge them to intervene, but on the bridge, the crew are undecided. They have to conserve their strength for the battle ahead, but the shuttle needs help and may be able to provide information about Neo Zeon's fighting strength. We don't have time for this, Elle cries out while the others discuss, dashing off and launching as quickly as she can. Rue follows her and the two of them fight off a squad of original Zaku. But it's strange. The enemy dodges and weaves around them for just a little while before racing past, scattering, and retreating. It feels like a setup. Aboard the shuttle, they find a crowd of refugees huddled in the cargo space. They seem relieved that an Ayub ship has found them, but at the same time, they want reassurance that they won't be taken back into a war zone. Astonaji tries to put their minds at ease. The plan is to drop them off at a neutral colony before any attack is launched. Everyone bustles about, trying to get their new passengers settled in and their identification checked. And just as the Nail Argama is ready to continue its journey with the shuttle in tow, another civilian vessel comes under attack nearby. This time, Judo launches, and although the Zaku pilots try not to engage, the Double Zeta is too fast, and Judo is too determined not to let them get away. He slices through one with his beam saber and shoots down another, but freezes in place when, coming around the vessel, he finds himself face to face with a third mobile suit. The pilot yelling, This is your fault! It's because of you that she... The Zaku has its heat hawk raised, but is shot down by the small ship's guns before it can bring its weapon down on the double Zeta and its stupefied pilot. This ship is old, practically antique, and is carrying a delegation from Moon Moon, including Sarasa and Rasara. With a huge grin, Mondo greets Rasara, blushing as Bicha teases him. But flirting is put aside when they find out the reason for this encounter. Sarasa has sensed an intense, evil aura aboard their ship. The crew of the Nail Argama find themselves with another conundrum, and gather on the bridge to discuss what's to be done. They need to drop the refugees somewhere, maybe a neutral colony? Might any of them be interested in staying on to help? But they can't discount the possibility that some among the refugees are spies, planted there by Neo Zeon. Mondo is insulted that they don't trust his efforts to check all the passengers' identification, but the group decides it's best to recheck everyone. In a blonde wig and unremarkable civilian clothes, Haman hides among the refugees, a young woman with her. They've evaded detection thus far, but the crew are picking their way back through the crowd and it's only a matter of time before they are found out. 
Luckily, Astanaji requests volunteers to help with meal preparation for the group, and Haman's companion raises her hand. Slipping away from the group on their way to the galley, the young woman takes out a lipstick, pressing a hidden button that causes a small light on the tube to flash. She drops it down a trash chute, and outside the ship it bursts into bright, flaring light, a signal for nearby pilots that Lady Haman is in danger. Just as Judo lays a hand on her shoulder and asks for ID, the nail Argama comes under attack. Staring down the bridge, the attacking force demands the crew's immediate surrender. Bicha and Torres blame Mondo, sending him straight for the cockpit of the Hyakushiki, set on cleaning up his own mess. Judo tries to stop him going out alone, to no avail. Determination alone is not enough to win fights, and Mondo is outnumbered. One enemy grabs his mobile suit from behind while the other kicks the Hyakushiki, knocking it over, then stepping on it to pin it to the ground. Fierce as the fighting is, it soon becomes obvious that the Neo-Zeon forces are trying not to hit or damage the Nail Argama. With one big burst of energy, Mondo and the Hyakushiki shake off the enemy pinning them down. Judo arrives as backup, tripping the second enemy mobile suit. Mondo takes his beam saber to it, then throws the Zaku clear before it explodes. They mop up the rest of the attackers before returning to the bridge. Inspecting the refugees on her own, Sarasa pinpoints the source of the aura. She addresses Haman, describing the aura as a distortion, not Haman's true self. Your feelings are no different from Judo's. Never forget that, she tells the disguised dictator before wishing her well and walking away without telling anyone this woman's true identity. So as I was watching this episode, I noticed something. It's a small detail, but it really threw me for a loop when I saw it. And I had to check, I double checked, I triple checked, and it's really there. It's exactly what I thought it was. The guy that Astanaji talks to, the refugee who's kind of like their leader, shakes Astanaji's hand. Who looks like an old timey pilot. Yeah, yeah. Something about his appearance was like tugging at some memory of mine. And I went back and that exact same character design And I don't mean like pretty close, I mean exactly same hair, same mustache, same face, even the same outfit down to the mustard yellow turtleneck underneath the olive drab army jacket. That guy was the head of Karaba's Hickory base in episode 16 of Zeta. Identical. And I don't think he's supposed to be the same person in universe. I think they just recycled a character design I don't know that I've ever encountered such an exact reproduction of something that wasn't intended as an homage. This isn't like that episode where they had Kaneda and Tetsuo from Akira refueling shuttles on Granada. This is just reusing the same character from a prior show. For what it's worth, I found Haman's disguise to be almost identical to the appearance of Lady Haman in First Gundam. That also, the big blonde hair thing she has going on. And that, I mean, because the names are so similar, that feels like it had to have been intentional, doesn't it? 
Yeah, I saw that and was like, hmm, channeling lady, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I assume that was intentional. I assume they were like, we've got these two characters, Haman and Hamon. Why not, just for fun, make Haman look like she's cosplaying as Hamon? I also assume that the young woman with Haman is Pudu too. She's absolutely drawn too tall here. And but to my mind, she looks too old. Yeah, but with Pudu too, they're constantly making her seem older. That is true. Uh, I had assumed she was like part of the Neo Zeon, I don't know, Secret Service, or maybe actually one of those maid attendants who was always with Minova. I mean, if I were Haman, I would insert some trained secret agents into Minova's staff. Heck, I'd make them all trained secret agents loyal to me. Although, interestingly, Minova's attendants are never young women, they're never girls. They're never other but slightly older children. They're always like adult women. I mean, why would you waste a bunch of children as ladies in waiting to Minerva when you could use them as pilots? I'm fairly positive the voice actor is the same as for Purdue 2. Hmm. That would be strong evidence. I also think the face is the same for all that the outfit is different and she's definitely too tall and the hair is different. I mean, if she's too tall, seems too old, but has the same voice as both of the Purus, that could make her the original or a sister or something. I don't know. I feel like that sort of overcomplicates all of this when it seems <laughs> just as likely that it's Puru 2, they just drew her too tall. <laughs> the end. <laughs> uh, but everything else is overcomplicated. Why can't this be? This episode made me wonder if... Uh, Unlike the previous two Gundam series that we've covered, Double Zeta actually had too much time to work with. Mm. Because I'm really not getting the point of this episode. And I suppose it depends on what happens next, but there are so many things about it that make no sense. It's funny you should mention that. Because while I don't know about this episode specifically, I do know that the next episode, the one we're going to cover next week, was not originally planned. The number of episodes got extended, and so they had to sort of make something up on the fly. Oh, ho, ho. And it's very possible that that was not the only episode that was added. This one might have also been. When we look at the situation here, Haman's plan must involve either capturing or or killing someone or some group of someones that she considers even more important than the nail argama itself right because her presence on the nail argama makes it impossible for any of her troops to do anything to this ship yeah if she hadn't been there they could easily have destroyed it and it becomes very obvious very quickly to even Mondo, who doesn't have as much combat experience as some of the other pilots, that they're missing on purpose. <laughs> Although they're missing more than they intend to. And there's that one comment from the Xeon pilot about some kind of a barrier around the ship, almost like Haman or Judo or the agglomeration of all of these different new types has created some kind of psychic protection around the ship that's causing him to miss? I don't know. That's certainly a very intriguing little detail they drop on us. After watching through the episode a couple of times, I think that Haman's real goal here is to make contact with Judo, presumably to recruit him. Because there's that bit 
right before the leader of the Zakus gets killed, where he's like, if not for you, Judo specifically, she would never have, and he gets cut off. And I assume he means she would never have infiltrated the Nail Argama. Right, and that makes sense to me in a way, but she's clearly looking for some very specific timing in order to try to talk to him, uh, because she's concerned about being found out, to the point where they activate that little signal, which we learn from some of the Zaku pilots means that they're in trouble, and she's effectively just throwing those troops away, because if they can't fight off the ship itself, if they, you know, if the crew of the Nail Argama aren't foolish enough to immediately give in and say like, oh, okay, I guess we're surrendering the ship. And the Zaku pilots are unable to really attack the ship, then she's basically just like letting them be slaughtered as a distraction. I mean, I assume they were hoping that that bluff would work when they have their guns pointed right at the bridge and they're like, surrender, move to the center of side three so that we can take the Argama uh, into captivity. The crew of the Nail Argama doesn't know that Haman is on board. So in theory, maybe that bluff could have worked, except that Mondo got so fired up by everybody being disappointed in him that he went out and did something very reckless and managed to pull it off. Just a lot of other moments in this episode that make no sense to me, you know, mm -hmm, despite mm -hmm. the the suspicions around the shuttle attack and how it doesn't feel quite right. It feels like some kind of a setup. Nobody checks any of the cargo crates in the hold. And then those, you know, Rambo-y guys, <laughs> the guy with the knife, <laughs> the in, knife his teeth. in his teeth. Because, <laughs> I mean, that's how you know he's a commando, right? He's got a knife in his teeth. Right. They could have snuck aboard the Nail Argama, but they don't. They, like, go out a hatch from the shuttle. So I don't even know what the point was of having them in the shuttle in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> and similarly, a big part of this episode is that we have all of these refugees who are trying to escape side three, but the Argama is heading towards side three, so they want to get off the Argama, so they need to go to a neutral colony. Like, that's sort of big picture structurally what's happening. And yet... The Lavienne Rose is right there. It's right there when they pick up those refugees, and it's heading somewhere else, somewhere safe. They could have, should have, just put all of the refugees onto the Lavienne Rose and sent them back to the moon or wherever it's headed. There's no good reason for them to be on the Argama, except that the story wouldn't work if they weren't on the Argama. This is an episode written by uh, Kamata, and I'm starting to notice he's only written a couple of these episodes. I think this is his third or maybe his fourth for Double Zeta, but I'm starting to notice he can write a good scene. He can write like a, a funny or an emotionally affecting scene, but big picture, there are a lot of these sort of issues where it doesn't quite make sense what's going on. The causality doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> Similarly, when, where, and how did Sarasa sense this aura on the Nail Argama? Could she sense it from Moon Moon? Because unless she could sense it from very far away, and they came specifically for that purpose, then there was some complete other reason why they were out in space in this shuttle that they never divulge and is never explained. I assume that they're just doing tourism. <laughs> is that why Roll has the camera and keeps taking pictures of everything? Uh, yes, although that's not Roll. 
This is a different unnamed functionary. What? Yeah, this is the guy who commands the uh, the guards at the beginning of Moon Moon, Ooh. not Roll. Okay. Well, he's clearly very excited to have access to uh, photograph technology. <laughs> well, it's very advanced by Moon Moon standards. Also, I really hope those were the only three Moon Moonies on that ship, because if not, all of their friends got vaporized during that battle. And then, after all of that, Sarasa finds Haman and doesn't tell anybody? <laughs> Aggressively not helpful. I really enjoyed her brief interaction with Haman, this whole idea that this horrible aura is coming from you, and the the aura is a corrupting influence. It She describes it as tempting people to lose their way, which is very much what I was saying about Mashima previously and how he is being corrupted. No wonder you liked it so much. His closeness to Haman. Yes, because it proves me right. Exactly. <laughs> but also that at her core, that's not Haman either. That Haman is, in fact, very similar to Judo. That Haman herself has been corrupted and that that corruption is then spreading to other people, which is a super duper old religious notion of how corruption and purification works. It's the reason why you are supposed to shun people who have come in contact with corruption because they can then spread it to other people. That's very Shinto. But frankly, even without Sarasa's claim, even without uh, Sarasa identifying the exact source of the evil aura, Haman zaps Judo with some pretty intense new type power. I love the way this is depicted. It like races all over him. Like it's St. Elmo's fire or electricity or something. And it almost, I think it forms like a dragon or something or a bird as it's leaving his body. At some point it sort of swoops around him. I thought it looked a bit like when shows depict living vines capturing mm. a person. Uh, but yeah, this woman refuses to show you ID and then zaps you with some new type energy. Ah, but the enemy is outside, and clearly that is the thing that I felt just now. I like... <laughs> Judo is a dumb space boy. But he's been so much better at deliberately using his new type powers over the past couple of episodes, and he knows they're looking for a suspicious person among the refugees. But he's also so accustomed to getting that little new type flash when he's in like immediate physical danger from enemy mobile suits. And even if he had some suspicion that the new type thing he experienced was coming from this woman, he still had to go and deal with the more immediate threat. And by the time he was done with that, he was, you know, probably distracted. He had forgotten about it. I want to go back to what you were saying about the writer for this episode being really good at scenes. Uh, I don't know how much control he would have had over this, but this episode had a really great, I've heard people call it acting, basically the, the way the body movements of the characters are animated, the way their faces are animated. It's very expressive and fun and active and across a whole big group of characters. Uh, although the ones that stood out with the most for me were Bicha, Mondo, El, and Rue. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all of them are great. Bicha begins the episode making all kinds of pretty funny uh, groaning noises as they run away from Mashima. <laughs> he gets so excited once Mashima's not chasing them anymore <laughs> that he accidentally 
like bounces up and hits the ceiling. He has a whole bunch of other moments when various people are getting on his case that he reacts, you know, either sheepishly or defensively or uh, it's just very expressive. I mean, and that scene where uh, you mentioned Ellen Rue, that scene where the two of them are each doing like a chore. Elle is trying to do all the cooking. Rue is trying to do all the laundry for these 80 refugees. And then they both call Beecha at the same time asking for help. Uh, and Elle is like whacking the phone with her ladle. I love that moment. It's the so good. The whole scene, uh, I think, is one of the best in Double Zeta so far. Truly love it. Though, while we're on the subject of Elle's expressiveness, there's that one line in the beginning of the fight between them and the Zakus, when the Zakus are coming at them and Elle is like, ah, it's so scary, I'm frightened. Which Felt completely out of character. Totally out of character. Especially given that they're going up against some effectively antique mobile suits. And Elle has like never shown anything but confidence in battle, even against much more challenging opponents. My only assumption is that it was meant to be sarcastic, but they don't really convey that. And she immediately flips back to confidence a second later in the same scene. So sarcasm would make sense, but I don't feel like that's conveyed. Yeah, between the, the way the line is delivered and the expression on her face, it feels much more like sincere fear than sarcastic. And then we have the star of the episode. We have Mondo. And it's everything from his apparent nervousness when he's checking the first round of IDs, which seemed odd to me. I wasn't sure why he felt nervous. I think it's just that that guy he's talking to is super intimidating. <laughs> uh, and that, I, I'm, I don't recognize him, but I'm sure that guy is a cameo from something else. He's like too much a character. With the sunglasses and everything. And the hair that's like spiked up a little bit. You know, Mondo's... Very sincere and sweet emotion that he gets to see Rosara again uh, and then to be teased by Bicha about it. Well, I mean, all the casual hand holding he's doing. So with much hand holding. Uh, <laughs> I was amused when Rosara is saying, Oh, you haven't changed one bit. And he's like, Really? I thought my experiences would have like hardened me. <laughs> yeah, I love that. This is what I'm talking about. He can write a good scene. Uh, and the the show of emotion after Mondo has said it was my mistake that led to the problem and so I had to go fix it, which is funny because since they haven't actually found an infiltrator, there's n how is his uh, sort of inability to effectively check all these IDs responsible for them being attacked by some Zaku? I'm not clear on that, but apparently everyone else is. Maybe the implication is that he was supposed to check the freighter. And it's Mondo who didn't think to check the cargo containers. You know, something like that. Maybe. It's a little unclear. Anyway. I'm reading into it. I'm, I'm bringing something to the table for this. Everyone clearly considers it his responsibility, including him. And after he explains that he had to go fix it, Torres says, oh, this is making me reevaluate what I think of you. And Mondo tears up. That's so sweet. Uh, he just wants to be valued and appreciated. And uh, I don't often feel kinship with Mondo, but I have absolutely started to tear up because of a compliment before. <laughs> the emotions, they're real. He's a good kid, once you get past all the murder. Well, attempted murder. They never actually did manage to kill Judo. 
We mentioned the chores earlier, the laundry and the cooking. They go to the refugees and they ask for volunteers to help out with that. And I don't know if you noticed, but... Oh, I noticed. I figured you might have noticed. 100% of the volunteers to help out with these tasks are women. And it's not as if the crowd of refugees is majority women, children, and elderly people. Nope. It's a, a pretty good mix. I didn't see hardly any children, actually. No. It's mostly adults. I didn't even see babies, which they usually put in for these refugee scenes. But yeah, Astanaji even points out to this group of refugees, this is all stuff for their benefit, right? It's blankets for them so they can be more comfortable. It's food for them, because who knows how long it's been since they've eaten. And still, only about half a dozen people volunteer, and it's all women. We have mentioned before, when it comes to El and Rue, that the women of the Nail Argama, the women of the Gundam team, are willing to do these stereotypically women's work kind of chores, but they uh, don't do so quietly, happily, or in the background. They take up space, they make noise, they complain, they demand assistance. And then with the refugees, we see women 5 to 15 years older sort of falling naturally into that role, into that task. And we see the generational divide again. Did it feel like that discussion ended a little abruptly? Well, there's a good reason for that. Due to an equipment malfunction, we lost the last 15 minutes of the talk back this week. And then with the construction noise eating up all our best recording hours, we didn't have time to go back and re-discuss those subjects in time for the episode this week. But don't worry, we will revisit them either on next week's episode or in a special mini-episode sometime next week. And now Tom's research on a famous historical deception. The setup in this episode, Xeon commandos and mobile suits hide away inside false cargo containers in a civilian freighter to sneak past the impregnable defenses of the Nail Argama, while their disguised agents infiltrate the ship and wait for the right moment to send a signal to their allies, might have felt as familiar to you as it did to me both because that's a setup that shows up in fiction all the time, but also because that's pretty much the story of the Trojan horse, among the oldest stories that we have. Now, I imagine most of you are at least familiar with the outline of the story of the Trojan horse. It's pretty pervasive in our collective culture. It was referenced explicitly in First Gundam, when Xeon soldiers dubbed the white base the Trojan horse. But as I'm pretty sure we mentioned back in Season 1, that reference was exclusive to the translated English version. In Japanese, they call the white base Mokuba, or Wooden Horse. Wooden Horse could mean the Trojan Horse. In the Odyssey, what we call the Trojan Horse is simply called the Wooden Horse. But Japanese uses Mokuba, or Wooden Horse, for rocking horses, pommel horses, sleds, and certain torture devices. If they were making an intentional reference to the Trojan horse specifically, I would have expected instead the phrase Toroya no Mokuba, or the Trojan horse. According to various behind-the-scenes sources, the original design inspiration for the white base was actually the Sphinx of Greek and Egyptian legend. It got the name Mokuba, allegedly, 
because someone at toy sponsor Clover complained about how difficult it would be to sell toys of a space carrier that looked like a rocking horse. This is a fun and revealing anecdote, but I would just like to point out that if Bandai were ever to make a white base-themed rocking horse, I'm pretty sure they would sell out immediately. I have several nephews who would receive one. (laughs) Despite its sphinx-like origins, it did look pretty equine. And when the designers added wings to the white base, they started calling it the Pegasus, from the winged horse Pegasus, and from which we get the Pegasus class, of which the white base is the leading ship. And over in Tomino's novels, it's actually just called the Pegasus. And here there's no ambiguity in the name. The katakana they use is Pegasasu. Pegasus, of course, also comes out of the same mythic tradition as the Sphinx and the Trojan horse. In fact, the human rider of the winged horse Pegasus was Bellerophon, and two of Bellerophon's grandsons, Glaucus and Sarpedon, fought in the Trojan War. Although Sarpedon was killed by Patroclus and Glaucus by Ajax, long before the Trojan horse made its debut. So it's not possible for me to prove at this point that the people making Gundam knew the story of the Trojan horse, but given what I've just told you and how well known the story is generally, it's kind of hard to imagine that they did not. Were they thinking about the Trojan horse when they wrote this particular episode? Maybe. Maybe not. But it is awfully similar. And the Trojan Horse story has inspired many similar deceptions, real and fictional, in the millennia since it was first set down on parchment. But as I was thinking about this Trojan Horse-like episode, I found myself wondering, sure, we all know the basic story of the Trojan Horse, but how do we all know the story of the Trojan Horse? The most famous depiction of the Trojan War, the Iliad, doesn't mention it. The Iliad, in fact, covers a tiny fraction of the story of the Trojan War. The Siege of Troy famously lasted for ten entire years, but the Iliad covers something like 50 days. Scholars do debate exactly how many days, but the debate is in the range of 50 to 55 at the outside. As I mentioned earlier, the Trojan Horse is mentioned in the Odyssey, Once in Book 2, when Spartan King Menelaus recounts his own experiences hiding inside the horse's hollow belly, waiting for the signal to spring forth and sack Troy, and then again in Book 8, when the bard Demodocus sings of how the Greeks sailed away and how the Trojans debated what to do with the horse before deciding to bring it into their city, sealing their final doom. But these leave out huge parts of the story, and to show just how much, I'm just going to have to tell it as fulsomely as I can. And afterwards, I'll talk through the sources we do have, from which we take many of these details. Before the Trojan horse enters the story, I should begin with the Trojan War. Like most myths and all wars, you can trace its origins back for decades and centuries before the event itself. But, to be brief, Troy was the mightiest and grandest city in the Mediterranean world. A young prince of that city, Paris, seduced the beautiful Helen, young bride of the Spartan king Menelaus, and ran off to live with her in his father's kingdom. But before her marriage to Menelaus, 
Helen's father had extracted promises from all the hordes of suitors who came for her hand, and each one swore a deadly oath to aid and defend her eventual husband. So when Paris broke the rights of guest friendship and eloped with Helen, the whole of Greece gathered behind Menelaus to pursue them. But even in the face of this vast army, mighty Troy would not fall, nor would the Greeks abandon their cause. And so for ten years they killed each other on the plain between the Trojan walls and the shore where the Greek ships rested. The tale of the Trojan horse begins with the prophet Calchas watching a hawk lure a dove out of its hiding place. Inspired by this example from nature, cunning Odysseus devised a plan to finally end the siege of Troy. They would fashion a great wooden horse and conceal within it all the mightiest warriors of their host. Then the rest would burn the camp and sail away to the nearby island of Tenedos, there to hide their fleet and all the mass of their army in waiting. But this, Odysseus knew, would not be enough. Someone would need to stay behind to sell the deception, allay the Trojan fears, and convince them to take the horse inside their impregnable city. Many among the Greeks were eager for any plan, any stratagem, that would bring to a close the long and weary decade of war-making. But not two new arrivals, Neoptolemus, son of Achilles, nor Philoctetes, who had joined the expedition at its start, but was wounded on the journey and languished for nine years on the island of Lemnos. Newly returned and healed of his wound, he was still eager to show his strength beneath the Trojan walls. It was only when Zeus crashed thunderbolts over their heads and cowed those two that they accepted the will of heaven. Then Athena herself descended from her father's house on Olympus and delivered to the architect Epias the plan for the building of the wooden horse. Epias was, famously, a coward, but now he would have his opportunity to make his name. The wood they got from the slopes of Mount Ida and in three days they built the horse. Then all gathered round to praise the statue for its manifestly horse-like spirit. But even as the Greeks celebrated, the gods fell into strife. They had always been divided about this war, always been divided about the fate of Troy. How else could it have gone on so long? Now a great host of gods, some from high Olympus, some from the depths of ocean, some from the gloom beneath the earth, all gathered to destroy the horse before it could be used. But arrayed against them was an equal host, determined to see Troy in flames. These two immortal armies fought, until Zeus himself climbed to the summit of Olympus and cast his thunderbolts between them. He had decreed that there would be no divine salvation for Troy this time. Ignorant of how close their schemes had just come to destruction, the Greeks instead turned to the question of who should go to Tenedos, who enter the horse, and who remain behind to talk with the Trojans and allay their suspicions. This lattermost was the trickiest, for it required that rare combination of great courage and total anonymity. Only someone unknown and unrecognized by the Trojans could hope to pull this one off. In all, some thirty mighty heroes entered the horse, with two positioned as lookouts in its vast equine head, peering out through the mouth. 
the rest burned their tents and sailed away in the night. When dawn broke, the Trojans raced down to the shore to marvel at the sudden disappearance of their enemies. There they found the horse, and nearby, hiding in a fen, a man, lean, hungry, and ragged. They dragged him out, questioned him, then threatened him, then tortured him, disfiguring him in every way, demanding his name, commanding him to tell the truth of the Greek departure and of this giant horse. Bleeding, in agony and under threat of death, this is what he said. The Greeks have gone home at last. They grew weary of the fighting and they resolved to leave long ago and would have done it, but ill omens and storms kept them ashore. Their prophet Calchas saw that the gods were angry and would not permit them to leave without some sacrifice. And here I enter this tragic tale, for I am Sinon. I was a Greek soldier, but wicked Odysseus took offense against me and resolved to see my doom. When he heard this prophecy, Odysseus used his cunning to have me named as a human sacrifice to see the fleet safely home. I was arrested, but my heart faltered, and when the time came for my death, I broke my bonds and fled. I have a kinship with this horse, for it too is an offering. They mean it as a gift to Athena, in apology for some sacrilege that Odysseus did. All of this was false, save the man's name, but his crocodile tears swayed many Trojan hearts. Many, but not all. The priest Laocoon circled the horse and peered carefully at it. He listened to Sinon's tale, and he was not swayed. This is all a lie, he insisted. He called on his fellow Trojans to burn the horse at once, or throw it into the sea, and when they wavered, he himself hurled a spear into the flank of the horse. It penetrated the pine plank sides and quivered there. The hollow within rang. But Athena closed the ears of the listeners against this noise, and she sent an earthquake to shake the ground beneath Laocoon's feet. When he fell to his knees, she struck him again, blinding him in excruciating and gruesome fashion. Seeing in this a divine punishment for the priest's doubt, or perhaps for their own poor treatment of Sinon, the Trojans bound the wounds that they had inflicted. They resolved that they would take the horse and the deserter into the city and celebrate them both. But Laocoon would not cease. Even in his agony, he exhorted his countrymen to burn the horse. If there is one lesson that you should learn from Greek mythology, it is that sometimes you just have to take the loss. The priest's intransigence enraged Athena, and she resolved to do worse than merely blinding him. She dispatched a pair of monstrous serpents from the sea to seize Laocoon and his two sons. He struggled against the serpents, but in vain. Their venomed fangs had already made corpses of his boys. Laocoon fell to weeping over them, and when the Trojans dragged the horse into their city, he said nothing. That night the Trojans feasted, but Helen, for whom this whole war had been fought, walked round and round the horse where it stood atop the Trojan citadel. Suspecting deception, she called out to the men inside in their native tongue. She even changed her voice to imitate each man's wife in turn. Separated by just a few inches of wood, the homesick soldiers yearned to answer her, but Odysseus gestured for silence. 
When one man still opened his mouth to answer her, Odysseus closed it with his hand. Helen left, and the Trojan princess Cassandra replaced her. Where others had suspected the horse's contents, Cassandra knew them. She had the gift of prophecy, but with it came a curse. No one would ever believe her. And this time, too, while they banqueted at the feet of the horse, she went among those Trojan heroes and cried out that calamity awaited them. The earth was opening at their feet and the underworld beckoning. Already, she said, they walked the path of ghosts. But they mocked her. Get out of here, raving girl. A maiden like you should be modest and demure, veiled in purity. But you, you are always gloomy. Your tongue speaks words empty as wind. You give voice to ruinous madness. This sort of thing is why no man will marry you. Now go, leave us in peace. Then Cassandra snatched up a spear from where one of the soldiers had carelessly tossed it. She ran at the horse, meaning to pierce it through and through and prove her case. But one Trojan snatched her up, and another plucked the weapon from her hands. They dragged her away. Within the horse, the Greeks marveled at Cassandra, who understood their plot so completely, even as they rejoiced to see her driven away by the other Trojans. The night wore on. The Trojans drank and reveled. They cursed the departed Greeks and boasted of their own achievements. Their words only sharpened the blades of the horse-hidden warriors. When the Trojans at last fell into drunken stupor, Sinon crept up to the battlements, and there he lit a torch. In the distance, a lookout on Tenedos spotted this light. Then Sinon drew near to the horse, and he called softly, so softly, Now! Quietly, from within, they unbarred the ribs of the horse, and everywhere openings appeared. Ladders emerged, and with quiet footsteps, some thirty heroes disembarked from every side, from the top, from the belly, from the mouth. Some ran to set the great temple and the mighty palace aflame. Others swiftly sped to the gates, slew the slumbering guards, and seized the towers. Down at the beach the Greek ships drove their dagger-like prows into the Trojan sand once more. Eager soldiers in full panoply leapt from the ships and raced across the plain to join their comrades in the city. What came next was all fire and blood gruesome slaughter and desperate escape. Unarmed, and with minds made soft by drink and sleep, the Trojans and their allies stood no chance. Troy and the horse that had unmade it passed together into legend. So like I said, practically none of that can be found in the two Homeric poems. How then did it come down to us? The full story of the Trojan War, from the judgment of Paris and the kidnapping of Helen up through to the fates of all the various Greek heroes upon their returns after the sack of Troy, was told in a series of epic poems that we call the Epic Cycle. These incorporated and expanded on the Iliad and the Odyssey. And I'm using the past tense here because unlike those two Homeric poems, the Epic Cycle has only survived in fragmentary form. For example, only ten lines survived from the Sack of Troy portion, and only five from the Ethiopus, which tells the story of Achilles' death. 
The so-called Little Iliad, which covers the building of the horse, is one of the best preserved, but in this context that means that out of four whole books, we have 14 fragments, comprising nearly 30 lines. One of those lines does mention Sinon lighting the signal fire for the other Greeks. So that's as much as we can get out of the closest thing to an original source that we still have. Of course, the poets who were responsible for the epic cycle poems did not invent those stories from whole cloth. Like the Iliad and the Odyssey, these poems were based on centuries of oral tradition and might even be traceable to some real historic event from before the collapse of the Mycenaean civilization and the ensuing Greek Dark Ages. There may have been many versions of these stories floating around in the collective culture, but these were the versions that were written down and passed along to later generations as the oral tradition itself died out. It's not entirely clear when the epic cycle was written. Certainly, some of the poems had been written by the 5th century BCE because Herodotus mentions one of them. The Little Iliad, which would be the most important source for the story of the horse, must have existed by the 4th century BCE because that's when Aristotle went on record saying it wasn't very good. In a, <laughs> in a literary sense. It's both generally and traditionally believed that the epic cycle poems were composed after the Iliad and the Odyssey, possibly in imitation of those more famous works. Something like ancient fan fiction. But we really don't know enough about their authorship to be sure. And for that matter, we can't even put a definitive date on the composition of the Homeric poems either, and at least we have those. What's more, we don't entirely know when the various poems in the epic cycle became lost. Most of what we know about them comes from a 10th century CE manuscript that summarized each poem. But those summaries were extracted from a different, also lost work. Its authorship is also uncertain, and its date of origin is unknown. The Little Iliad, at least, probably still existed in the 1st century BCE, because the Roman poet Virgil included a recounting of the horse story and the subsequent sack of Troy from the Trojan perspective in his epic poem, The Aeneid. This depiction includes the deception by Sinon and the tragic fate of Laocoon and his two sons. In fact, it was Virgil who put into Laocoon's mouth those famous words, I do not trust Greeks, even those bearing gifts. The story in the Aeneid maps closely to the surviving summary of the Little Iliad, suggesting that Virgil may have had access to that text, or one based on it, in the 1st century BCE. Another source for this is what we call the Library, or sometimes the Bibliotheca, of Pseudo-Apollodorus, a summary recounting of many myths, including those of the epic cycle. It's Pseudo-Apollodorus because it was initially attributed to 2nd century BCE writer Apollodorus of Alexandria, but that attribution is now discounted, and the text is believed to be from the 1st or 2nd centuries CE. This library was almost lost, surviving into the early modern period in only a single, incomplete manuscript. Most of the book is relatively well-preserved, but for our purposes, the sections on the Trojan War are missing. 
Instead, we have to rely on two of what are called epitomes, or distilled summaries of the work written by later authors. These epitomes were themselves obscure manuscripts, and they would not be reconstructed into an approximation of what the missing portions of the library probably said until 1913. Really, we're talking about a giant game of telephone from the Trojan War until today. A more complete and detailed retelling of the story came some centuries later with Quintus of Smyrna's epic poem Post Homerica, which covers the whole period from the end of the Iliad to the end of the Trojan War. The Post Homerica stands out as the earliest surviving complete telling of the end of the war, including the stories of the horse and the sack of the city. Most of the details in the story I just told come from the Post Homerica. Writing in either the 2nd, 3rd, or 4th century CE, Quintus may have had access to the epic cycle poems, or he may have been referencing other interlocutors. Probably the Odyssey and the Aeneid, possibly the Library of Pseudo-Apollodorus, or other works like it. He certainly must have inherited a wealth of other literary and popular retellings of the same stories, not to mention summaries and fragments from older works that had been lost even in his own time. The copy of the Post-Homerica that we have today is very nearly complete, but it too was lost for centuries until 1450, when a manuscript was discovered in Calabria. So just think about how close we came to losing most of the story of the Trojan horse. Imagine if all we had to tell the story of the fall of Troy was some brief summaries and a few references contained in other poems. It would be like trying to reconstruct the story of Gundam using nothing but the references to it that show up in Sergeant Frog and Gintama, and maybe a couple of those Hello Kitty collaboration commercials that came out last year. Next time on episode 3.38, Like Looking in a Mirror. We cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta, episode 40, and we should have saved that balm bomb joke. Hong Kong and Kyoto? That's just Orientalism. Ew. Sick dragon, brah. Ducky! Catching religion. Performing gender. Anachronism ga. And the taxes are too high. You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Soup Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB players. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram, at GundamPodcast, on Facebook, 
at facebook.com slash gundampodcast or by email at gundampodcast at gmail.com. Or why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, Bright had to pick BJ to command the Argama. The captain's chair only accepts people with B names. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. This week's wrong Gundam opinion comes from Joni. Thanks, Joni. And thank you for listening. Okay, I was talking seriously about the point we made earlier. <laughs> I'm a little out of sorts. Um, is, uh, was, I do know that, I do the, <laughs> We would also uh, be remiss not to mention we get an all according to Keikaku moment. <laughs> More like Pudu too tall. You know, they can't see you shaking your head disappointedly through a podcast. <laughs> what? Well, torture and. Uh huh. Are you not familiar with. <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> Moving along. Anakuro ni Anakun, it's hard to say. <laughs>